G'day and welcome to GradChat, your opportunity to find out about graduate research here at Queen's. My name is CJ the DJ and I'm your host for this week's GradChat. Of course, a show like this could not happen without the support of the School of Graduate Studies and CFRC, so thank you very much to both of them. Now, if your mates miss the shows at any time, you can still download the podcast the next day on either iTunes, Google Podcast, or Stitcher. So no excuse not to hear what our awesome students and postdoctoral fellows are doing, or in this case today, an, an alumnus is doing. Just a reminder though, we are still in the pandemic, so we're not recording in the studio. We are doing this um, at home both of us so the quality is not quite as good as when we do it in the studio but we're doing our best. Now today I'd like to introduce you to Branavan Sivaraja who defended his thesis back in October in 2020 and now he was doing a PhD in biology under the supervision of Dr John Small but either way great to have you back here um, Branavan. Hi Colette thank you so much for having me again at the show it's good to be back. And it's interesting because you know, Branavan, if you those of you who have been listening, has been on here a, a few times, although it's been a while since we last chatted. But you know, Branavan was here before, usually with other people, because he wasn't quite ready to do it by himself. <laughs> so it was usually, you know, when, when I think it was doing the Northern Conference where he was helping coordinate that, and he got some of his mates in to discuss some of the topics going on in the Northern Conference. Um, and so he was very quick to putting his hand up to get other people on, but not so much about wanting to showcase too much of his own research at the time, but we're going to get onto that today. And I've also been very fortunate over the years that um, I've worked with Branavan quite a bit, particularly like in orientation or informational webinars throughout the years. Now, Branavan's one of those people, I go, I need some help. And I don't really let him give give him much of a chance to volunteer. I kind of volunteer for him. And luckily, <laughs> we said yes. <laughs> always, Colette, always. <laughs> Thank you. I love students like that. It's fantastic. So it's just really, really good to have you on the show, Branavan, to just talk about you today. So um, thank you very much for coming along. And also, congratulations on defending your thesis last October. Thank you so much, Colette. Yeah, as you said, the last time I was here in the show, it was more than a year ago, actually. It was 2019, April. I was still trying to focus on like the core findings of my PhD. And now that I have completed it, I feel like I can talk a bit more about them. And I would love to share them with you and the listeners today. Well, uh, we're going to do that. But before we do that, how does it feel being finished? It feels surreal. Uh, everyone who <laughs> congratulated me knows that like, that was the first thing I said. It feels surreal to be done. Uh, it's been uh, a long uh, journey. Uh, but a really good one, though. Uh, along the way, I learned so much. And uh, working with John Small has been an absolute pleasure and privilege. Uh, he has mentored me in so many different ways, uh, especially doing Northern research. And, right. Uh, so, yeah, this has been a blast, I would say. I'm sad that it's completed. But in the meantime, I'm also really happy and thrilled that it's done and moving on to new adventures in the new year. Excellent. So we better find out then what you have actually been doing all these all these years. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
because you haven't been sitting still, that's for sure. So just to um, remind some people, because as Branovan said, he, he kind of touched on it with some of the times he came on, on Grad Chat, but not totally. So your research topic is the long-term ecological consequences of gold mining operations, urbanisation and climatic changes on subarctic lakes near Yellow, Yellowknife in the North, Northwest Territories of Canada. So first of all, can you give us, as I usually say, can you give us a bit of an overview of what you were, what you were doing? So the overview would be Yellowknife is one of the largest population centres in northern Canada. And I always like to describe Yellowknife and the surrounding area as a limnologist's paradise because there are so many lakes. Uh, so limnologists are uh, researchers who study lake ecosystems. Right. First and foremost, uh, Yellowknife is located on the northern shores of Great Slave Lake, which is the deepest lake in Canada and North America. Oh, is that right? Yeah. And next, the region has so many lakes. In fact, the city of Yellowknife is built around several lakes. So it's been an absolute privilege to work with my northern research partners uh, to learn a bit more about how these lakes have changed over the last 200 years in response to a variety of environmental stressors. So you already listed them uh, in the introduction. Uh, So gold mining was the main one, but also urbanization, climatic changes, essentially looking at all of these different stressors and how they have impacted the biota in these lakes. It's interesting. One of your colleagues said last week, Matt, was talking about this word anthropogenic. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what you guys do a lot up there in, in the Pearl Lab. Yeah, exactly. So anthropogenic period would be considered where the human influence on local ecosystems are quite striking and dominant, which could lead to a lot of changes on the local ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, when we take the case of Yellowknife, uh, this region has been the traditional home of the Yellowknife's Dene for several centuries uh, before any major industrial activities began in the 1930s. In fact, the first people's of Yellowknife have fished in the lakes and the land was used for hunting and harvesting berries. However, in the 1930s, things started changing and they started changing rapidly when gold was discovered in the area and staking for claims began right away and mining activities were followed shortly thereafter. Of course, they were interrupted by the Second World War, but then in the late 1940s, when mining began at the giant gold mine, it marked a new era in Arctic resource extraction activities because it was the beginning of a massive 50-year operation. But it has also left a very complex environmental legacy because a lot of the lakes in the region have elevated contaminant concentrations. And then in 1967, Yellowknife was declared the capital of the Northwest Territories, which led to a sharp increase in population And with increasing population, there are a lot of land use changes that occur. For example, a growing population needs waste and sewage disposal sites, road construction, housing development, just to name a few things. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, more recently and more importantly, based on available meteorological data, we know that climatic conditions have changed in this region as well. Of course, in agreement with observations from several other parts of Arctic and around the world, Yellowknife is also warming rapidly. 
and this region has also undergone changes in precipitation, wind speeds. So a lot of environmental changes have happened in the Yellowknife area. It must be um, hard to disentangle. So I guess the question, because you've got you've got lots of different areas there that are impacting the area. So as you, as we mentioned in the beginning, you no, know, it's the gold mining, it's the urbanisation, it's and there's the climatic changes. It must be hard to know which one is actually having the biggest effect. So you know. As you said, there are a lot of stresses impacting the lake around Yellowknife. Mm-hmm. So how can we disentangle the impacts of various stresses or, or can we actually disentangle the impacts from multiple stresses at all? Yeah, that's a great question because that's one of the most important management questions that we have uh, nowadays is how do we disentangle the impacts of multiple stressors? And the second part is, can we do them in meaningful ways? So mm-hmm. this is where a long-term perspective is super helpful. So as I mentioned, like the things have been changing in Yellowknife since 1930s. So it's not something that happened over the past 10 years or for the past 20 years. This has been happening for half a century. But then the baseline environmental data are often not available in many cases, and Yellowknife is no exception to that. Right. So this is where we have to rely heavily on natural archives like lake sediments, where biological and chemical proxies from both within lake but also outside of lake are accumulated. For example, environmental pollutants from industrial complex would be transported by air and deposited into the local landscapes and waterscapes. So this is one way that chemical proxies end up in lake water and then eventually get incorporated into lake sediments. Similarly, lakes are full of life. Often we think of the top of the food chain like fish uh, when we talk about aquatic organisms. But there are also a lot of microscopic biota which form the basis of aquatic food webs. And when these microscopic organisms die, they leave identifiable remains which we can use to reconstruct past environmental change. And the best part about natural archives like lake sediments is that they accumulate continuously, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and 365 or 366 in leap years, uh, days a year. So this is a great way to reconstruct past changes. And the best analogy I could think of would be lake sediments are like history books. And the different proxies we use are like different languages and perspectives we use to interpret history books. So disentangling the impacts of multiple stressors is possible by using these long-term natural archives uh, because we are creating or we are inferring the baseline environmental conditions. So that's pre-anthropogenic disturbances. And Mm -hmm. then how have they changed afterwards? So I'm assuming then when you're up there, you you know, we're talking about the core samples and how important it is from you know, not just taking core samples, I guess, on the lake nearby, but near, near the urban centre or near the mining. But it'd be good to get, you're talking about baselines, I guess. So yeah. to get a baseline, apart from digging down, I guess it would also be important to get a base sample from lakes a little bit further away from Yellowknife. Exactly. So this is where the strategic selection of lakes becomes crucial to the study design. 
So we, uh, as you said, collect samples from lakes that are very close to the mines and the urban center, but also these far lakes uh, that are only accessible by helicopter pretty much are core to this uh, study because they will help us to disentangle the impacts of how climate alone has influenced the biological assemblages in these lakes. As opposed to the mining and the urbanization. Exactly. So by comparing these changes uh, to some of these remote sites, uh, we can disentangle the impacts of climate on urban lakes. However, this is not always straightforward. And that's where I would say it becomes very challenging to disentangle the impacts of multiple stressors in urban lakes because some of these stressors, they interact with each other, especially in the case of climate and changes associated with nutrient enrichment. They can work together, uh, forming some unpleasant surprises in lakes. Unpleasant surprises, that's always a bit scary. Yeah, so an example would be algal blooms. I'm sure you have heard of oh, yes. Yes. algal blooms where you know there is this proliferation of algae and there is an accumulation of surface scums, uh, which oftentimes can be quite unpleasant to look at, but also they can have influence on how the aquatic biota are going to be responding to those accumulation and changes in the limnology mm-hmm. there. And uh, one of the lakes in Yellowknife since 2013 has had algal blooms. Now, algal blooms are quite common when we talk to folks around, you know, Ontario, especially southern Ontario and such. But in northern environments, they're so rare. In fact, there are only anecdotal reports of algal blooms from the Canadian oh. Arctic. So when these algal blooms occurred, you know, people were genuinely concerned. Why yeah. are these occurring now and in these, you know, colder regions? And that's where the impacts of multiple stressors can be quite striking. It's interesting, again, with your baseline, looking at the baseline and looking at different lakes who aren't near the near Yellowknife. Mm-hmm. Are you looking on the same parallel? Because the climate there's presumably colder. Exactly. So that's where uh, we were very conscious of which lakes we are comparing and which lakes we are selecting for these studies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we made sure they are about 25 kilometers to 40 kilometer radius from Yellowknife uh, to make sure we are making meaningful comparisons among lakes. So how does your research findings from Yellowknife compared to lakes and other, for instance, mine-impacted regions, whether it be here in Canada, such as at Sudbury, or um, other countries like in Russia. I think there's a place you mentioned here called Norlisk. Is that correct in Russia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So my interest in the impacts of resource extraction on aquatic ecosystem was was sparked during my master's. I actually worked on some of the acidified lakes around Sudbury, Ontario, where we have observed chemical recovery. So that's the increase in pH because a lot of these lakes reached very, very low pH during uh, the acidification era. So my question was, how has biota recovered in these systems? And And the most recent biological assemblages are in fact indicative of higher pH, but the specific assemblage composition 
are not the same. So what I mean by that is during the pre-acidification era, for example, we observed species A and B. And then during acidification era, we saw more of species C, which is like a classic indicator of low pH and acidification. Mm -hmm. And in the most recent years, we see some species A, but instead of species B, we are now observing a new species D. So I have oversimplified the data here, of course, because <laughs> we usually work with hundreds of species uh, in the sediment core. But the general observation is that recent assemblage changes are not the same as what was recorded prior to any anthropogenic activities. So this wow. is pretty much what we are observing in Yellowknife as well. Prior to the mining activities, we observed you know, relatively stable assemblages with very, very, very minimal changes through time. But then, after 1930s, changes started happening. And in many cases, these changes started happening very quickly, whereas in other cases, they happened more gradually. So, of course, the main stressor in Yellowknife was the metalloid contamination from gold mining activities, right. but also the impacts of climate and urbanization uh, have led to some very, very different assemblages in the most recent years. It's interesting because I would imagine it's the the mining that's the biggest issue there but because there's urbanization going on it does make some changes too so well let's go on to the next question then what does your research mean then for the management of subarctic lakes in a changing climate because the one thing which is we can still control but is harder to control is the climate change we can absolutely control in my opinion the mining and what we do urbanization and things so so what does your research mean for the management up there so i would say things are a lot more complicated uh, or they are not as straightforward as we thought before uh, because a lot of these contaminants can be very sensitive to environmental change for example, one of the main contaminants of interest in Yellowknife is arsenic. And arsenic is known to be mobile in the sediments. So through uh, even though they are deposited into the sediments a really long time ago, some right. of the work from Heather Jamieson's group at Queen's University in the Department of Geology has shown that, you know, arsenic is mobile in the sediment. So how would that impact more contaminants coming into the surface waters in the future that could be right. something to consider and uh, so yeah we have a lot of co-occurring stressors in the Yellowknife area uh, and the legacies of you know previous mining activities but also land use changes so in a warming world how are these systems going to uh, change in response to multiple environmental stressors mm -hmm. so we really have to embrace the developing framework uh, related to multiple stressors and placing these ecological changes within a multiple stressor uh, context for better management of the freshwater ecosystems. Well, and I guess that's interesting too, because with climate change, with everything heating up, it's not like the permafrost and things up there is the same as what it used to be. So more and more things are leaching out of the soils and things that before may have been stuck there because they were frozen. Mm -hmm, exactly. Uh, climate change is definitely leading to a lot of unexpected and in some cases surprising consequences 
And so, yeah, like even with contaminants, uh, similar ideas could be applied. So when you look, I'm going to go back again with some of the core samples and things that you've been taking both from down in the ground and what you're seeing on the, more on the surface. Mm-hmm. You mentioned at times, you know, for instance, a plane could be flying over and whatever the fuels and things, I mean, clearly it gets into the, into the air and eventually it would, I would assuming it would settle to the ground. With the, the north, um, the top end up there sort of opening up more, which is the bit that always scares me with the north, Northwest Passage, Mm-hmm. Um, I guess we're going to have to think about that a little bit more even, aren't we? But how can we prove to people that we don't want lots of planes flying over across or boats coming nearby and all those sorts of things? So a lot of times, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the biggest challenge is baseline environmental data. And uh, the benefit of using paleolimnological approaches like the ones that I have used in my PhD is that we can go back in time and see if these human activities have measurable impacts on the local ecosystems. Right. So that's where I would start. I would start with looking at, you know, core samples, but also ice cores is another great example of looking at how the polar regions are changing. Oh, yes, of course. So one of the ways to, you know, develop baseline data first uh, to investigate what could be the long-term impacts of these human activities on these systems? Are, are you showing the governments the, the kind of impacts that's happening and how, for instance, the mining industry needs to change how they are extracting minerals and whatever from the ground? And it's sometimes not just the extraction, it's the process that leaves all these bad elements around, doesn't it? So are are the things that you're writing or helping to write to prove that we need to have different requirements for some of these mining industries? So a lot of the contamination that took place around Yellowknife uh, happened during the first few years of mining because that's where there was very, very minimal environmental regulation. However, post-1960s, the emissions from some of the gold mines in Yellowknife itself started declining uh, because of stricter environmental regulation. So it was proved it could help. So exactly, yeah. And a lot of developing mine projects have to go through rigorous environmental assessments. And the key important thing is we have to maintain that standard of environmental assessment Mm -hmm. for future projects as well. There is no way to have much wiggle room uh, in these environmental assessments because some of these impacts can can manifest uh, several years after the operations have ceased. So it's really important to look at the baseline conditions, what could be the potential impacts, and more importantly, what could be the long-term potential long-term. impacts. Well, I'm, I'm glad there's researchers like you and, and John Small's lab up there doing this kind of work because it's super, super important. So thank you for for doing that. So I I guess my next question for you, though, is because you've done your bit up there. Yeah. During my PhD, I also had the privilege of working further up north near Resolute Bay in Little Cornwallis Island, uh, where there was the Polaris mine, which was Canada's uh, northernmost mine, and looking at how mining activities in that region have altered uh, the water chemistry. That's great that you've been able to go all over the place. 
Yeah, it's uh, been an incredible journey to investigate how mining activities during the 20th century have impacted the lakes in uh, many parts of Canada. Well, I hope everyone's paying attention to this because it's really, really important work for not just your, your PhD, but for the world in general. So what's next for Brennavan from now on? What are you going to be doing next? I'm starting a postdoctoral fellowship at Carleton University. Fantastic. Uh, with Dr. Jesse Vermeer. And moving a little bit away from aquatic ecosystems, I'm going to be looking at terrestrial ecosystems and looking at microplastics. Uh, which is an emerging pollutant, a lot of interest, uh, specifically research interest, but also policy interest, uh, looking at how plastics are going to be in our ecosystems and how they are impacting the biota in our environment. It's actually quite scary how they are impacting. It's it's funny, isn't it, how we, we go through these stages of, we find this new material and we think, oh, that's great. We're going to be able to do this, this and this. And then many years down the track, we realize it doesn't degrade in, in quite the way we thought it was going to. The same happened with polystyrene, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of stuck around. It's stuck around for years and years and years and not doing any good for the environment. Yeah. So that's where like going back to my earlier comment about environmental assessments come into play is... Mm-hmm. We really have to thoroughly investigate what are the long-term consequences of these substances, in my case, pollutants, like metalloids, like arsenic and antimony, but also microplastics. What are their long-term impacts going to be? And Mm -hmm. how do these pollutants end up in the ecosystem in unexpected ways? So a lot of research to be done. And I think Uh, A lot of researchers, both at Queen's, but also elsewhere in Canada, really trying to get to those answers. And I think the other part, too, is just looking at collaborations and things within research. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're in biology. That's also an area within environmental studies. Mm -hmm. Um, To a point, you could look at like civil engineering because they're looking at, you know, making better better plastics or, or, or materials to help contain contaminants so or, so things don't get into the soil in the first place. Mm-hmm. So everyone's sort of working in different sectors, but ultimately for the same goal is to protect the environment. I think collaboration is a major step forward uh, towards environmental research. Uh, in fact, in my own uh, PhD research, I have had the absolute pleasure of collaborating with scientists from Yellowknife, And, uh, you know, you gain a lot of perspective, especially Mm -hmm. a lot of new and local perspectives that I might have overlooked uh, in my own research. So it's really beneficial to collaborate with scientists, uh, not just from our own academic institutions, but also in government and other uh, post-secondary institutions. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So it's been really beneficial to collaborate and do some exciting science. Well, I'm glad you're continuing doing it, even though it's in a slightly different area. Like you said, you're doing you know, the terrestrial with microplastics as opposed to what's happening in the sediments. But mm-hmm. it's um, it's the progression, and that's fantastic. And the fact that you're getting in to do a postdoc so you can continue your research in some way, that's, that's really, really good. So I'm so excited for you. Thanks, Colette. Yeah, it's been uh, really exciting doing what I have done so far and um, uh, really looking forward to the new adventures. 
Well, you're going to do great. And Carlton are very, very lucky to have you because Thanks, you're, you're very good at supporting whatever university you're at in both <laughs> so helping others within the university. So um, lucky, lucky Carlton, that's what I can say. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon, we're going to have to call it quits there. But again, thank you very much and best of luck with the rest of your what you're doing next in your postdoc. Uh, wish you all the best on that. Thanks again, Colette, for having me in the show. And it was great chatting with you about my PhD uh, research. Don't be a stranger. (laughs) I would love to be back in the show once I have more data from my postdoc. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) That would be perfect. And you're coming back as an alum because you would have graduated and everything by then. So that's awesome. Exactly. Well, that's it, everyone. We're going to have to leave Branovan this time. And uh, like I said, best of wishes to him in his postdoc. But that's it for us. Another week of Grad Chat sadly comes to an end. Don't forget you can download this show tomorrow from either iTunes, Google Podcast or Stitcher. Just type in Grad Chat. Until next week, this is CJ the DJ signing off with a big hooray. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Hey.